Wow. It looks like people are very interested in talking about and thinking about team functioning. And that is phenomenal um, because it's an area that is so very meaningful and important to our work. So thank you all for being here. My name is Lisa Davis. I'm the um, Associate Director of our Public Mental Health Partnership here at UCLA. Um, I'm an LCSW and I am also uh, have a PhD in social work focusing on mental health services research. I have some co-presenters today and we're gonna be facilitating an exercise together. Um, Dr. Elizabeth Bromley is a psychiatrist and a medical anthropologist. She's also an associate professor here at UCLA and she's the director of our uh, public mental health partnership. And Elizabeth Mackey, who is an MSW, is our lead implementation specialist um, for our, our public mental health partnership. So we're very excited to be here today. Um, and to talk about the critical ingredients that are involved in teams that thrive, because we all, I'm guessing one of the reasons why this room is so packed is because we all have experienced working in some type of a group, um, if not a highly structured team. And so I think we all know in a very um, direct and intuitive way how important and how impactful the way that we work together is, not only in terms of our job satisfaction, um, our well-being and our, our, our uh, risk of burnout, um, and how effective we feel in our job, but really, if you think about how much time we spend at work, this is also about like, our quality of life. So this is pretty big. Um, and I think my guess is that most of us in this room have experienced uh, what it's like and how painful it is to be on a team or in an environment where there's not a lot of trust. Um, sometimes there's a sense of disconnection that's almost palpable. It's a really isolating and demoralizing experience. On the flip side of that though, when we are connected, when there's a shared sense of understanding and we feel recognized, people are sort of aligned in terms of their purpose, um, Working in a great way as part of a team can be one of the experiences that's really great in life in terms of feeling part of something larger than ourselves. And not only feeling a sense of belonging, but a sense of meaning and purpose. Um, that has obviously is directly related to also how effectively we're able to help um, the people that we're serving. So we're gonna touch very briefly on a few sort of key fundamental factors that set the stage for teams to function well. We're gonna focus on a few strategies and tools to help promote that. Then we wanna turn our attention to applying some of these concepts using um, some vignettes of different team scenarios. So um, we'll touch on all of that. Um, before I dive in here, can I see a quick uh, show of hands? How many people here are either supervisors or team leaders or supervising someone else? Wow, okay, fantastic. How many people are doing direct service but not supervising anybody else? Okay, all right, great. So we can touch on some of the nuances that have to do with your different roles, but it's wonderful um, to have people that are our team leads that uh, might be able to take some of these tools back as well as those of you who are um, not necessarily supervising. Okay, so we are gonna start from the beginning um, with one of the most core kind of fundamental factors that really provides the foundation upon which almost all aspects of 
effective and successful teamwork are built. And that is having a foundation of trust and psychological safety. Um, a psychologically safe environment is an environment where people are able to be open and transparent about their difficulties, about their dilemmas, about the complex challenges that we face. We have every day, we face a lot of difficult decisions and dilemmas. There needs to be a space where people can be transparent about that, where they can acknowledge their concerns. Maybe I didn't do the right thing. I don't know. There's uncertainty and anxiety. Um, they can ask for help. And also, they can offer feedback to others that is really substantive, including giving feedback to other people about areas that they may disagree with, where they may see things differently. And they can do all of that without fear, um, without fear of being labeled in some way or perceived negatively, without fear of some kind of negative consequence to their job or their career trajectory. So psychological safety has to do with um, perceptions of the consequences of taking these kind of interpersonal risks in our work environment. And higher degrees of psychological safety are related to a lot of good things, like greater uh, levels of engagement, um, more learning and, and development opportunities, motivation, uh, better outcomes, and so on. Um, in contrast, you know, teams where there isn't enough of that trust and psychological safety, people really tend to feel the need to sort of conceal some of their difficulties or confusion or disagreements. Uh, they may hesitate to ask for help. Um, this has obvious implications in terms of being able to really effectively resolve all of the uh, sort of dilemmas involved in, in client care. Um, I had the chance to dip into uh, Paul Broadwin's wonderful talk on moral distress this morning. I highly encourage all of you to watch that. It'll, it's videotaped on our, our website. Um, he talks about the fact that, you know, because there are so many uh, difficult sort of uh, dilemmas that we face around, uh, for example, wanting to support and protect clients, but also um, respecting their autonomy. There's, there's these a lot of gray areas. If we're not, if we don't have a safe place to process that, we get into these danger zones that he talks about with moral distress. The danger zones are frustration and futility. Right, And if we get stuck there, it's really, really hard. That's not only uh, has huge implications for burnout, but obviously in terms of client care. Um, I want to pause for a moment to show you just a little um, demonstration of psychological safety or lack thereof. Now, the candy will pass by on this conveyor belt Continuing to the next room where the girls will pack it. Now your job is to take each piece of candy and wrap it in one of these papers and then put it back on the belt. You understand? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Let her roll! <laughs> Let her roll! Well, wait here. Somebody's asleep at the switch. <laughs> What are you doing up here? I thought you were downstairs boxing chocolate. Oh, they kicked me out of there fast. Why? I kept pinching them to see what kind they were. <laughs> this is the fourth department I've been in. Oh, I didn't do so well either. All right, girls. Now, this is your last chance. 
If one piece of candy gets past you and into the packing room unwrapped, you're fired. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> resonate a little bit with the conveyor belt experience like it, more and more and more is coming down the line but not necessarily more resources and it's a frenzied kind of trying to stay afloat and here at the chocolate factory it doesn't really seem like an environment that exactly encourages a lot of open and honest dialogue about difficulties and struggles um, the supervisor is standoffish to say the least if not downright intimidating she immediately makes it clear that, that uh, mistakes will not be tolerated her method of supervising involves sort of taking this quick glance at the end, she's not very attentive, jumps to a faulty conclusion, which actually ends up exacerbating the problem. And meanwhile, Lucy and Ethel are furiously trying to conceal the difficulties that they're having. One of the things I love about this image too is that their method of trying to conceal this literally results in them becoming silenced as they kind of fill their, their mouths with chocolate. They, they actually lose their voice to be able to speak about uh, what's happening. But it's a very lighthearted, of course, humorous image of uh, an experience that probably most of us have had of feeling like you're in over your head and also that it's not really permissible or possible to be really open about that. And that's a really difficult place to be and, and clearly uh, makes it very difficult to resolve the, the problem. Um, the last thing I wanna mention, you know, if you notice, it's very easy to sort of identify with Lucy and Ethel um, and they're very adorable in their struggle. Um, but it's worth mentioning that Many of us in this room either are, or if you're not, will be, um, in the role of a supervisor. And it's worth thinking about, although she's not very sympathetic, um, that she too probably has her own dilemmas that are shaping her not particularly helpful way of responding. So, what can we do? How do we try to promote 
um, this culture of trust and safety that's so critical. Um, so first of all, every member of a team can contribute to a culture of safety. So even if you're not a supervisor or in a position to directly influence other people's behavior, we all have our own ways of responding to team dynamics that we can um, try to become as aware of as possible. Um, especially noticing our own sort of reactivity around team uh, dynamics. This is not anything new. It's, this is a matter of shining a light, just shining a light on how these different dynamics play out and what they're um, eliciting in us because if we do want to speak up or take action, we're much more likely to do that effectively if we can identify what the conflicts and what the dynamics are. Um, are we experiencing distress about, um, are we having our own conflicts about sort of the, the program guidelines or the dictates of our, our uh, programs and our own values? Are, is there uh, issues related to workplace hierarchy? What's going on in the team dynamics? And there's a lot of strategies out there. A lot of people have been exposed to mindfulness and, and a lot of different ways of doing this. But the first step is really being able to identify our reaction and the conflict that's happening. Then if we choose to speak or take action, again, we're more likely to do, to, do that in a way that people can hear. Um, and we're less likely to sort of impulsively become defensive. We all have good days and bad days. So, you know, sometimes it is what it is. But if we can really be intentional about trying to uh, notice our reactions. Um, one little sort of strategy that has to do with um, sort of an, a self-regulation technique has to do with sort of reconnecting or humanizing people that, especially if you've had difficult interactions over time with in the team. And that can be literally just reminding yourself or kind of saying to yourself, this person has beliefs, opinions, and perspectives just like me. Um, this person has hopes and anxieties and vulnerabilities just like me. You know, this person wants to be respected, appreciated, and competent. And just remembering that we're all in this boat together and then the other thing is kind of flipping if we do want to speak up about what's going on um, being very aware of uh, using language to identify you know dynamics that's neutral and seeing if we can replace statements um, that are especially if they tend to be sort of blaming and criticizing kind of flipping that into um, a process of inquiry um, so Neutral languages, it seems to me like X, Y, and Z. I'm noticing, you know, one person is saying that, you know, it's a good idea to do X, but we also want to be aware of the client's, you know, preferences, whatever it is. Um, and then kind of, uh, again, sort of opening up questions. Um, what is it that you're thinking needs to happen here? Um, what, what do you think would be the best way to proceed? How can I support you in creating a change in X, Y, or Z area? Um, there's also different kinds of group exercises that can help the team as a whole. And um, one example is a self-assessment type of exercise where we have the members of the team um, sort of give them an assignment to think about and come back to the team and talk about what they view as their most significant contribution to the team and also sort of where their edge for learning is for the good of the team. So when we ask people to think about and talk about um, and take a little bit of risk in terms of talking about areas of struggle, 
I think it's really helpful to always tie it back to what's the area that I could improve on or, or, or grow in for the good of the team to help the team function better. Um, and similarly, we can have um, team members also identify what they view as the greatest contributions of their peers and the greatest areas for improvement of their peers. Now, if you are a team supervisor or somebody who's in a position of authority or somebody who's a leader, you have an opportunity to go first and model doing this in a way that um, is really non-defensive and receptive. So if you go first and you talk about um, your own strengths and, and your areas that you're working on, it's very, very powerful in terms of giving people permission to go to that level. Um, now, all of this sort of developing this sense of psychological safety is so important in large part because it facilitates this next part of the process. And this second key ingredient, which might be one of the most important for the work that we do, is the, is the ability to um, really unpack um, con controversy and dilemmas and conflict in a way that's, that's healthy and constructive. So um, most people avoid conflict. We know this, right? Not everybody. Some people, it's their preferred mode of interaction. But most people feel uncomfortable. This doesn't necessarily feel good. It doesn't feel good to talk about um, areas where uh, people have real profound disagreements about how to approach something. But it's really, really necessary in order for people to synthesize um, these differing uh, perspectives and views. So one of the, and I'll give you a couple examples, but um, the first thing is constructive conflict is we need to differentiate this for our team members. It's centered around expressing differences in ideas and concepts. Right? It's very different from personality-focused attacks or even jibes, those little sort of undercurrents. Um, it's also free from constructive controversy and debate. It's not about sort of an entrenched position um, of, of sort of justifying one's position as being right. Um, the, the goal of constructive controversy um, is to come up with solutions that are potentially more robust than we would have otherwise, otherwise arrived at had we not gone through this back and forth and synthesizing different perspectives and disagreements. Now, let me just say about constructive conflict, and again, I think this is where Paul uh, Broadwin's work is really helpful to reference if you want to learn more about this. There are certain types of conflicts that have to do with moral dilemmas, right, where there's, there's not an answer. There's not like a right answer. So you're faced with a dilemma of, um, you know, somebody's refusing services and your, your, your goal may be that, you know, you really, they really, they're living on the streets and they need these services. And there's this moral dilemma around how do I work with their autonomy and their self-determination and yet, um, persist in, you know, not giving up on trying to uh, support and help them. That's a dilemma where there's not necessarily a right answer all the time, but it's really important to be able to process that kind of and go back and forth um, with the different uh, 
the, di the different pulls between wanting to protect, let's say, and wanting to support autonomy. Other kinds of constructive conflict can be very solution focused though. Um, a team, there's a good example of this is an agency that I was working at recently. We had a meeting where uh, we were talking about outcome completion rates, um, and there was a they, there was a manager in that meeting who was kind of frustrated, you know. And she said, "You know what? We're going to give them their completion rates every quarter, and if they're too low, they need to be going up. So they they at least have to be moving in the right direction. And if their completion rates are not going up every quarter, that's an, a performance improvement plan issue. You know, that's a performance evaluation issue. Um, sort of end of story." Another manager was there just looking skeptical. And she really had to be prompted and, and sort of um, helped uh, to talk about her skepticism. And when she did start to talk about her objections, she started to say, well, you know, sometimes they hand it in, but it's outside the window, or there's a delay from the time they hand it in. It gets entered into the database. So they thought it was completed, but it's not in there. And there were multiple sort of nuances and factors that she started to raise as concerns. Now, this actually resulted in several really heated discussions over different meetings. And people were weighing in, in in all kinds of different ways. We ended up coming up with an amazing solution, just amazing, which was somebody in our outcomes division created a very simple database where people could log on and get search for their information for, for all of their clients. They could see when, how many, how comes they handed in when, how many were outside the window, how many the client refused. They could access that whenever they wanted so they could self-monitor. And people loved this tool. Um, and it was kind of the synthesis of a sort of a supportive approach of giving people tools and information and at the same time raising the bar and just really holding people more accountable and saying, you got to do better. Um, so that's a good, and it never would have happened without multiple sort of heated discussions, which I will tell you were not fun. I mean, it's not pleasant. Um, but it was, it, it resulted in something that, you know, other, without that, the frustration would have continued. The rates probably wouldn't have gotten better. Neither side would have felt heard. So some strategies around this. Um, first of all, uh, I think it's important to talk with our teams actually about this concept and to differentiate what we mean by constructive conflict and constructive controversy, that we want to invite people and in fact encourage them to talk about disagreements or conflicts that are usually there below the surface, right? These things are, it's, they're present. It's, it's not that, you know, avoiding them doesn't really help. It, they're there, but they're just usually not being addressed in the open. So we want to support people in and sort of coaching them to say, it sounds like there might be some differences or even what happened in this case, the per somebody saying, you know, you look really skeptical right now and inviting that and sort of coaching them to stay engaged when it's not particularly fun to do so, but naming what the core conflict is, um, identifying that, not colluding with the avoidance, um, keeping it constructive, that's centered around, again, sort of different perspectives and not personality focused. And people tend to have certain kinds of um, habitual patterns around conflict, so, it's good to be sort of mindful of this, even though, you know, we're all helping professionals, but we all have our own sort of blind spots. Um, 
avoidance, of course, is just shutting down around conflict, whereas accommodating is, is sort of yielding to another, you know, minimizing your own side so that you can sort of yield. It's another way of dealing with the discomfort of conflict. The polar opposite of that is competing, right? Asserting one's view as being the right view and sort of disqualifying other views. Um, so helping people, it's not that there's one right way to deal with conflict, but if we're always avoiding or we're always arguing our point, um, sort of as a habitual pattern, um, that's a problem. The key here is identifying and naming the underlying dilemmas, the push and pull. Um, maybe it's a conflict between what our program guidelines are and what our values are about client care. Um, and really importantly, helping people to avoid all or nothing thinking. So it's not black and white. Right? So the person on the street who doesn't want to talk to us, doesn't want our services, there isn't a black and white answer about how you balance um, honoring self-determination and also um, intervening to help somebody who may not be able to help themselves at that moment. Um, so avoid, you know, trying to avoid uh, all or nothing thinking around that. And if we're able to process those kinds of dilemmas and, and conflicts constructively, what happens is people tend to be able to have a, a much greater genuine sense of commitment to the shared goals of the team. Now, this may sound kind of simple, you know, being committed, right? But it's often fairly nuanced because people can appear to uh, agree with things and even comply, but they actually may have concerns or confusion um, or disagreement, again, that's not being fully expressed. And so there's maybe we've made it clear what the goals and priorities are, but people may actually have ambivalence or there may just be ambiguity and they're not really clear. Um, I know you probably, many of you were around, I remember several years ago when, the, when we first started to roll out the idea of integrated care in LA County, this is a really good example. Not a particular program, but just the idea that we were gonna need to start addressing people's medical and health con conditions through the mental health door. Most people, I think, understood the rationale for that, you know, why that's a good idea. But the how part initially was confusing for a lot of people, people had concerns. Um, if you're a mental health person, there could be like a shift in your, your, your professional role, your sense of identity, or just not feeling trained or prepared. And I remember a really large training early on where we were talking about integrated care and somebody finally raised their hand and said, you know, I, I was taught in graduate school like to be really careful about my scope of practice. And if I'm talking with somebody about their medical or health condition, how do, when does that, can that like blur into me giving medical advice? I was always told not to, where does that line happen? Um, how do I deal with that? And that opened up sort of a whole uh, bunch of people piggybacking on that concern. And if there hadn't been, you know, there were agency sort of management in the room to listen to each one of those concerns and respond. It's not like there's always a clear answer, but if people had not had that process, 
I don't think there would have been a way for people to really move forward with that goal and that priority and that all of the programmatic sort of initiatives around um, integrated care. So real buy-in and commitment involves a process where people um, can really have their thoughts and concerns heard and considered. It doesn't mean you're gonna get the decision that you want, but people need to sort of have a view into the fact that there's a process, a thought process, their ideas are at least responded to, even if the, the policy isn't one that they necessarily um, uh, would be how that they see it. And once people are, um, oh, sorry. Um, also, I, I wanna, this is really important. The other issues with goals and priorities is that we, the work that we do on FSP teams in particular, it's complicated partly because we have different types of goals and priorities that can sometimes feel like they are competing with one another or that there's trade-offs in. Um, and there's been some research done on ACT teams, ACT as a sort of community treatment, it's the model which FSP is based on. Um, and you actually have an article in your packet um, that talks about this research. And it's a, it's a really, really good article um, called The Teamwork in Assertive Community Treatment Scale. Um, and they identified these three overarching kinds of goals and priorities um, for the work that we do. And one set is goals that are related to quality. Um, another set is goals that are related to productivity. And then goals that are related to safety. And you can see how a focus in any one of these domains might feel as though it involves sort of a trade-off in the other. So if you're taking a lot of time and resources to focus on quality, um, that might feel as though it creates a tension in terms of focusing on productivity. And conversely, if you're getting a lot of pressure around productivity, it can be really hard to feel like you're prioritizing safety. And the way that FSP teams deal with that um, d people develop different norms and strategies in their teams in terms of how to work with that and develop um, strategies. But importantly, one thing that the research shows is that um, teams in which people are able to identify and voice what they perceive to be these incompatibilities and they're able to voice their discrepant views about what to do. Um, those teams demonstrate more effective team functioning than teams who are not able to engage in what researchers called constructive controversy. Um, that's good news for us because there isn't one right set of goals or right way to do this. But again, um, this issue of uh, being able to process these um, as a way of not getting to the place of uh, frustration and futility. And a big guiding principle there is processing it in a way where we don't fall into black and white thinking, right? Where I feel like, oh, I have to either follow the rules or do what's why I think is right for the client. And those become these very sort of dichotomous, um, we feel like they're mutually exclusive. That's when we get into futility and burnout. And similarly, teams can get polarized, right? Where there's a line in the sand. These people are the people that say, no, we should do this. And, the, you know. and it's the polarization and the black and white thinking that is the problem. Um, this leads into our final ingredient. So um, if you're able to 
uh, have enough psychological safety and you're able to identify and name these difficult dilemmas and conflicts and, and process them to some degree in a way that is uh, productive, um, you're much more likely to have you know, clarity and commitment to the goals. And then that allows you to be able to really operationalize some standards and expectations. So for example, if we say for our team, the quality of the quality in which we deliver trauma-informed care is a major priority of our team. Um, that's really helpful and important to identify that. But there needs to be some specific sort of oper operationalizing of that. So what are the key components of trauma-informed care? And how do we know that they're getting delivered consistently across the team? Do we have you know, a fidelity checklist? Do we have some way of really breaking that down and monitoring it? Because otherwise we can have a lot of inconsistency in the team, right? Some people may be going above and beyond, others are falling short, um, and that creates a lot of problems. Also, operationalizing and monitoring not only helps us identify problems along the way, but also we can then celebrate a lot of successes without waiting for the big things. Um, this is so important to morale, people getting the feedback about what the impact that they are having. Um, also very, very important in terms of morale and burnout. So when we distill this down, again, sort of a simple framework, but it's difficult to implement, right? Teams that trust one another are more likely to engage in this constructive conflict and debate and constructive uh, controversy. That facilitates greater commitment to plans of action. And it also increases accountability for delivering those plans. And all of that builds towards um, much higher likelihood of being able to deliver a higher uh, quality of care. So again, it's, it's, you know, this may not be necessarily anything like new or esoteric or specialized. The challenge though is really staying focused on uh, being able to carve out the, the energy and time and space to do this consistently. Um, one of the big dilemmas is that team meetings are full. So how do we have time? That's a good example of just a, a dilemma. And it's a dilemma that could be talked about and thought about and processed. There isn't an easy answer. But we need to be addressing and attending to the dilemma of making time to really um, address this or we, we not only risk not being effective again, but you know, really burning out. Um, okay, I'm gonna stop talking. <laughs> um, so we're gonna move to an exercise, but I want to ask if there are questions thoughts about any of this before we we're gonna give you guys some vignettes and um, they're fun they were fun to write uh, lots of interesting dilemmas and conflicts in there uh, we're gonna ask you to just read them and we're just gonna think out loud about them this is not you know you don't have to write a dissertation or anything um, but we we just want to use it as a jumping off point to get your your thoughts you guys, so thank you so much for being so engaged Thank you.